Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, I want to read our text for you. We're going to break this up into two parts, and uh, the title of our message is a Spiritual Father's Perspective, and it kind of worked out with Father's Day being next week, so we're going to do part one today and part two next week. But follow along in your Bibles as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to begin in verse 14. Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit? Of gentleness. The, the Apostle Paul here is writing to the Christians in the church in Corinth, and he's addressing some of their issues, some of their problems. And he's heard of their problems because someone wrote him a letter, apparently, and communicated that, boy, uh, this church that you founded, Paul, is having some issues, and maybe you should come and address it. And so he wrote them a letter. Uh, he's struggling really against their sins. He's trying to persuade them. He's trying to uh, push them um, into conformity to the truth of the Word of God. That's what we're called to do as believers. We're to live lives that conform to the truth that God has revealed to us through His Word. Um, For the most part, he's addressing them as Christians, even though they weren't behaving as such. Uh, He's very uh, passionate about these people. He's addressing their sins, he's addressing their problems, and he starts from very, very early in this book all the way through. And we looked at the first four chapters and we talked about the issue that was being raised, which was division in the church. They were setting certain leaders over them and and uh, they were kind of worshiping them and not the Lord. So they all broke up into different groups. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Jesus. And so as he's saying these hard things to them, as his beloved children in the Lord, he constantly wants to remind them, look, I'm not just doing this for the fun of it. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I have a relationship with you. And he talks of relationships with them. He, he talks, we, we looked at so far that he said that he's their servant. I became your servant. He says that he's a slave of God. He's not doing this on his own initiative. He wants to carry out God's commands. Uh, he also calls himself a steward. We saw that in previous studies. A steward of God's mysteries. And he wants to be faithful to tell them and explain to them and to teach them the truth, not just his opinion. 
And so he uses a lot of different illustrations, you might say, that describe his own ministry. And we're going to see a lot in this book that describes a lot about the church in general, the church of Christ in general, but also about the ministry that happens within that church and about the leadership that makes up the church of Christ as well as the people that make up the church of Christ. So it applies really to everybody. So we've been so far introduced to a couple different ones. He called himself a servant, a slave. He called himself a steward. He also used in verse 6 of chapter 3 kind of the metaphor of being a farmer, right? I planted, Apollos watered. He reached out to their agrarian kind of side of things back then, how they used to plant and sow seed. He also uses the illustration of being a master builder. He talks about laying a foundation. So all these illustrations are illustrations of his own ministry. He's trying to explain to them, here's how I want to come to you. I don't want to come to you just as someone talking down to you or whatever. I want you to relate to me because I'm trying to relate to you. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul speaks of pastors and teachers as those who herald the truth of God. Back in the day, there would be a king who didn't have, they didn't have newspapers, things like that. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have texting. They didn't have any of that stuff. No Facebook. So the king had to get a message out. Well, he would bring some heralds into his company and say, I want you to go tell people this. And they would go out and stand on the corner and herald the truth, the announcement of the king. That's what we're called to do as believers. That's what we're called to do as pastors, as, priest, as preachers. We're the kings. We're Christ's heralds. We're not up here spouting our own opinion or our information of how things we think things should work out. We're heralding Christ's message through the teaching of the Word of God. And one thing Michael hit on a couple weeks ago in our men's study last month at the breakfast was that we are called ambassadors. He mentions that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He calls a preacher an ambassador. Those who would represent their home country in a foreign land. We still have ambassadors today. We have ambassadors all over the world that represent the United States. They speak on behalf of our government. And so you have all these different illustrations that Paul uses to try to relate to these people. Now, this week is the week right before Father's Day. And so I thought it interesting in verse 15 when he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, and we're going to talk about what that means, he says, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The one thing that Paul wants us to understand is one way, the way God describes the relationship between those who lead the church and those who make up the church, a pastor and his people, a shepherd and the sheep, is similar to a relationship between a father and his child. That's what he wants us to see. 
And you think about that relationship, those of you who have children who are fathers, that's a very intimate relationship. It's not a standoffish relationship if it's a relationship that's appropriate, that it's a biblical relationship. And so I thought it interesting in, in John MacArthur's commentary, he points out the marks or the characteristics of a spiritual father. And even though they aren't really mentioned here in the text by name, he lists them out there for us. I think they're in your outline there. It says he admonishes, he loves, he sets an example, he teaches, he disciplines. One I left out was he begets, or he, he is the, the origin of that. Those of you who are fathers, you wouldn't have a son if you didn't play some part in that. That's just the way it works. Well, it's the same way with the relationship that a pastor has with his congregation that really any believer should have with other believers. So it applies to all of us. Now, sometimes when we have people that we love, whether it's our spouse or our children or grandchildren, whatever, sometimes because we love them, we have to point certain things out. We have to say things that may be hard to say. Whereas if that person was a stranger, we probably wouldn't say that. Um, I remember one time I was down at Key Market and I was just doing some shopping. I noticed this elderly gentleman pushing his cart in, out of his pant leg. It was about a three-foot section of toilet paper. And he's walking around Key Market with this toilet paper stuck to his leg. And I'm coming up behind him and I thought, I don't know this guy, should I even say anything? It's kind of embarrassing, right? You got something stuck there to your leg. Um, And I did, I said something to him. And uh, he thanked me. But most people were just letting him walk around like that. See, things like that, usually if you see something like that and you don't know the person, it's like, you know, okay, let somebody else deal with it. But, you know, when you got something stuck in your teeth or something like that, usually it's your wife or somebody, hey, you got something on your face or you got something, you got some food dripping down or whatever. Why? Because they love you. Whereas if it was a stranger, you probably wouldn't go there. And so sometimes we say the hard things to the people that we love the most. And that's really what Paul is doing here in the book of Corinthians. He's addressing some very difficult issues. Emmanuel read out of chapter 6. I mean, this church was so dysfunctional, it had people within the church suing each other. And then getting people outside of the church to come and help them with their suits. And so Paul had to address things like that. He had to address immorality. He had to address pride. He had to address all kinds of of issues in this church. And he did it because he loved them. He didn't have to. I mean, he planted this church. He gave birth to this church, really. He was there for 18 months as their pastor. Then he moved on to start another church, and Apollos came as their pastor. So he could have said, you know what? Okay, I got this letter, and they're complaining about all these sins in the Corinthian church. Uh, I'm not the pastor anymore. Let somebody else deal with it. But he didn't do that because he loved him. And as though as hard as some of these things that Paul wants to 
talk about. He wants them, more importantly, to understand why is he addressing these to them. Why is he talking to them like this? And it's because he cares for them. He loves them. I mean, when you look at the last section we went through, verses 6 to 13, the characteristics of a conceited church, I mean, he really nailed them in that, in that section of Scripture. He puts up beside their conceit and their arrogance and their fleshly immaturity. He says, now look at the lifestyle of the apostles. Look at how they differ. And the helpful thing is to remember that he is doing this because he loves them. He even uses sarcasm. And sometimes when somebody's being sarcastic with you, it's kind of like smart aleck, right? It's like, okay, what are you trying to... But that's not what his attitude was. He was trying to reach them no matter what. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to say and to write down and to record the things that he did here. And let's never forget that this is not Paul's word. This is God's word as inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's God's word through the Apostle Paul. And so he's trying to remind them. He's trying to warn them. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to wake them up out of their fleshly stupor. I mean, really, back in chapter 3, you remember, he talked about them being little babes. He says, you know what? You're, you're basically intentionally immature little babies spiritually. You're unwilling to grow. You won't grow up. You're acting like a bunch of little babies. You attach yourself to men. You attach yourself to the flesh. And he goes on and on. Sometimes when you're disciplining your children, I I trust that you do this before you discipline them. Now listen, you you know I love you, right? (laughs) And they know what's coming. <laughs> and they probably don't think you love them at the time. But you want to communicate that to them. You know, or even as adults, when we have to say something tough to someone else, and we see something in a brother or sister's life, and we've got to call them out on it, and we've got to, you know, we come alongside them, and we say, hey, look, you know my heart. You know I love you, right? But I have to address this. That's what Paul is doing here. But here in chapter 4, He begins to lay down this foundation because by the time it gets to chapter 5, it gets even tougher. And so he doesn't want them to have an attitude with him. But he wants them to be able to understand that, hey, he's doing this for their welfare, for their betterment. And so the first thing we see here in verse 14 is Paul's concern for the Corinthians. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. He wants them to understand, I'm not trying to point these things out in your lives to embarrass you. You know, they, they can't really handle what he's about to tell them unless he explains this to them, unless they know that it's coming from a, a heart of love. That word shame there. There's several words for shame, actually, in the original language here. But this particular word causes a person out of extreme embarrassment to withdraw. You ever had that happen to you? You see it on shows once in a while. You know, you have a bunch of people talking, and somebody mocks somebody, and all of a sudden the person's over in the corner, or they go to the bathroom, and they're crying, and then everybody else, oh, are you okay? 
you know, you're embarrassed so much you withdraw from the group. You withdraw from the whole crowd. And Paul says here, I am in no way trying to do that. I'm not trying to push you away. I'm trying to draw you closer. Closer to me, closer to Christ. That's why he says, I do not write these things to shame you. I do not. I mean, you can't miss what he's saying here in the original language. He's really saying, I would not in any way, shape, or form shame you openly. I just wouldn't do that. That's what he wants them to understand. Now, they may feel ashamed (laughs) because he's pointing out some very hard things. And maybe they feel ashamed because they're guilty. See, sometimes when someone points something out in our lives that needs to be addressed, we may feel ashamed, but they're not intentionally trying to shame us openly. But because of the conviction of the Spirit, because of the convictions of the word, words that we hear, we feel ashamed. He says, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to shame you. Sometimes parents try that with their children. They try to shame them into conformity. You know, it's like the kid that, you know, has to wear the wear the the, uh, the sign, you know, I'm a thief, and stand in front of his house for six hours because he, he took something that wasn't his from his sister. Or the dunce cap, exactly. You know, that, that stuff never works. That's not a good form of discipline. That's mocking somebody. You know, there's other ways to discipline your children in a way that's more biblical than that. And that's what not Paul, Paul is not doing that here. He's, he's not trying to shame them into conformity to the truth. He says, if you feel ashamed, basically, then you're feeling, that shame is coming from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm not here to make you feel ashamed. But he says, I don't write you to shame you, but what do I do? But to admonish you. I mean, when, when someone is shamed, it affects their emotions. Would you agree with that? But when you admonish somebody, it goes beyond that. It goes to the mind. It goes to the heart. Because it really serves as a warning to them. You're not just openly mocking them, but you're, you're drawing them alongside and you're, you're trying to help them understand what's going on. That word admonish comes from two words, which means mind and to place. Mind and to place. So what it means is simply, you know what, to place in someone's mind. To place something in someone's understanding. See, these are spiritually immature children that Paul's talking to. They just simply won't come out of the nursery. They're in there with their little binkies and their bottles and they don't want anything more. I mean, a lot of times children don't understand correction. They don't get it. They think somehow you're out to get them. See, this is what Paul is trying to communicate to them. 
He's saying, look, you know, I know you don't understand my motives. Let me try to explain it. I just want you to know that I really care about you. I, I care about you so much like a father would his own child. He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. And then he says, as my beloved children. My beloved children. This word is used as, as something that is very, very precious. It means dear, loved one. And he's using the word children here. He's referring to that as a spiritual sense, obviously not a physical sense. You'll see that even more in the next point. But you ask the question, well, how is he their spiritual father? How would they be his spiritual children? Well, they're first and foremost children of God. But what connection does he have to them? Well, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. See, he has the right to call them his children, his spiritual children, not only as an apostle, but because he invested his life with these people and he cares about them. That's what he's trying to show them. He says, I planted. That means there wasn't any seed until I came. That's really what it means. Before Paul came to Corinth, there was no church. And when he came, spiritually, he physically and spiritually planted the seed of the gospel in their heart, and they came to Christ. What he's saying is, God used me to plant. I planted, Apollos watered. Apollos was, remember, the second pastor. He came along and he watered what he had planted, what Paul had planted. And notice, he's not saying this in a braggadocious manner, because he says there in verse um, uh, 6, that God caused the growth. God caused the growth. If you look at verse 10... The same chapter 3, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation that someone else is building upon it. And so he's simply explaining that, you know what, these are very immature children, and they can't take correction. They don't understand how to take correction. He says, you're like my own children to me. I have a spiritual connection to you. And that's why I'm willing to say some hard things to you. So he's going to develop this relationship. He's going to develop this illustration of this relationship between a father and a child. And it's not that you're just concerned. Okay, it's not just that he's concerned about them, but he has a deep compassion, a deep love for them. I mean, you can receive a lot of things from people whom you know love you. A lot of hard things. But it's hard to receive something from someone who you don't think loves you. (laughs) Maybe they have it in for you. 
And so we see his concern first there in verse 14. Secondly, you see the compassion that he has. The compassion of the Apostle Paul takes a different dimension here. Uh, It moves beyond simple concern, and he's going to illustrate his fatherly love for them even more. Um, You know, if a stranger came up and said something to you, maybe your father would only have the right to say you might be resentful. But here Paul is saying that, you know, only a father would know and understand the kind of thing that you guys are going through. And so he says in verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He wants them to make sure that they understand how he relates to them. Now, let's be upfront about this. God is our Heavenly Father. Would you agree? So what's he talking about here in the sense of relationship? He's talking about the sense in a spiritual world. He's saying, you know what, I have a deep connection with you spiritually. And the, the reason he does this is because, you know what, I planted. I'm the one that gave you the words of life that you came to believe. I led you to Christ. And that's really where a, spiritually, a spiritual father's relationship starts. I mean, a father is somebody who has what? Has a child. You can't be a father if you don't have a child. That's just common sense. If you don't have a, a child, you're not a father. You may be a husband, you may be a man, but if you don't have a child, you're not a father. But you became a father when you, what, produced offspring. What's unfortunate in many of our churches today is there are many Christians who are not spiritual fathers. What do I mean? They've never produced a spiritual child. They came to Christ. They got saved. But they've never even once begotten anybody in Christ. They've never led anybody to Christ. So they're not a spiritual father. I mean, really, that's the contradiction of what a Christian is, if you stop and think about it. Because a Christian is what? It's a living thing. And one of the characteristics of a living thing is it has the ability to what? To reproduce. If it's not a living thing, it can't reproduce. And so a Christian... We're called to be reproductive. We're called to produce other Christians. See, every believer should be a spiritual father in that sense to somebody in Christ. Now look at what he says here. I became your father through the gospel. He says, I have, I'm the result of you being a Christian. I'm the reason. Because I came and I gave you the words of life. I gave you the gospel. Now the word I here in the Greek is emphatic, but he's not saying this. Paul is not saying, I am the one that saved you. That's not what he's saying. Unfortunately, there are people in the church today that believe they can do that. When we say we lead someone to Christ, 
understand theologically, we understand that God draws them, that it's God that saves them. Paul is not saying here, I alone, as opposed to all your other teachers, you know, I am the one that, the only one. What he's saying, though, is he's the only one that God used as an instrument through which they were saved. So they have one spiritual father. And that's why he has that relationship with them. There's a sense of concern. I mean, it's not that you don't care about people that you don't lead to Christ, obviously. He's not saying that. But when you lead someone to Christ, I think you would agree with me. When you have the opportunity to be used by God in someone else's life and you see their life transformed by the gospel, you have an immediate attachment to that person for the rest of your life, for all of eternity, really. You have a concern. You know, you, if you don't see them in church, you might give them a call. Or if you see something in their life, you might speak to them about it that needs to be addressed. Whereas I'm sure we all see things in other people's lives that maybe we don't address all the time. But when someone comes to Christ through your ministry or, or, or through God using you in the life of someone else, you have that immediate relationship there. You have an intimate, responsible relationship. And that's what Paul's saying here is, you know what? I'm really the one that gave you the truth that caused you to come to Christ. You have a lot of different people that teach you. That's what he says. You have countless guides. The idea is thousands, tens of thousands. But he wants them to know that in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. That's why he says that. It's not all focused on him. He's not trying to get the glory here for their salvation. Because there's basically two things that bring about salvation. Two things from a divine standpoint. First of all, the power of Christ. The power of Christ is the reason we're saved. And secondly, the truth of the word of God. You have the power of Christ and the truth of the word of God. And when those two converge on someone's life, they come to Christ. But we can't forget there's a third thing. There's a third thing. You can call it a human agent. (laughs) There was someone human in the process. More than likely, you just didn't wake up one morning and say, yeah, I think I'll just become a Christian. Sounds like a good gig. I'll just do that. No. You had someone speaking truth into your life. Maybe you were watching a program. Maybe you were listening to a radio program. Maybe you were, had a relationship with somebody that was a Christian and you weren't, and they began to speak God's truth into your life. See, that's the way God designed it. See, we are in Christ and We have the power of Christ moving through us as Christians through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we give out the word of God, when we give out the gospel, that's how people come to know him. In James chapter 1, verse 18, he gives us an insight here. He says, 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. See, God brings people to himself through the word of truth. That's why it's so important when you're sharing your testimony, as even as we heard last week when Lisa got baptized. And you know, when we hear somebody's testimony, it's always encouraging to me when they encourage or when they include Scripture. They'll quote a Scripture. Maybe they don't even tell you where it's at, but they're quoting Scripture. Why? Because those words have power. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word, by the word of God. That's why it's so important to hide the word of God in your heart, to meditate it, to, to kind of meditate on it. it. Because it's the word of God that's the instrument that God chooses to use to bring others to himself. In John 3, it says that also it's the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, that divine power. But there's also a human aspect to us coming to Christ. And what Paul is saying here is, yeah, it's all about Christ and his power, and it's all about the word of truth or the gospel. That's important. But don't forget, I was the agent that God used to draw you to Christ, he wanted them to understand that. Because sometimes we get so caught up in our thinking when it comes to the sovereignty of God, which is a very important doctrine, and we hold to that wholeheartedly. But sometimes we get so focused on that that we begin to think that we don't have to do anything. That, you know, oh, God will just save whoever he wants. He doesn't need me to do anything. Because God's sovereign. Kind of an easy way to get out of it, isn't it? <laughs> it's an easy way to get out of evangelizing anybody. Well, you know, the pastor says that you know, we're chosen before the foundation of the world, so God got it all worked out, so I'm not even going to pray for the people. I don't even, it doesn't matter. That's not a biblical mindset. That's really fatalism. That's, that's not what the Bible calls us to. That's why in our church we support missions. Why? If God's going to save many anyway, why do we have to give many money? Because we believe that God uses human agents in the process of salvation somehow. Remember what Jesus prayed. He says, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. What? That he'll save everybody. Does it say that? No. What do we pray? We pray, you therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will what? That he'll send forth workers, that he'll send forth laborers. Well, if we believe God is sovereign and he's going to do anything anyway, why do we have to send anybody anywhere? <laughs> because that's the way God operates. That's what God has chosen to do. God has chosen not only redeeming men through the power of Christ, and the power of his word, but also through human people. So you and I are part of that process of someone coming to Christ. I mean, think of it this way. In, a, in the human realm, in our world, the father of the human child is used to plant the seed that impregnates the egg of the woman. 
Now, we understand that in every sense of the word, that newborn baby is what? It's a creation of God. It's not man's creation. Yeah, a husband and wife don't say, oh, look at what we created. No. They were just part of the process. See, we may be used by God as a human instrument. Hodge, great theologian, says this, For though multitudes are converted by the Spirit through the Word without any ministerial intervention, just as grain springs up here and there without a husbandman, yet it is the ordinance of God that the harvest of souls should be gathered by workmen appointed for that purpose. So a spiritual father is someone who gives spiritual children. John MacArthur's father, who was also a pastor, said this, the church ought to be a maternity ward where there is a constant cry of newborn babies in Christ. Think about that. If we were all so concerned for the lost, and if we understood our spiritual role as believers, that we should be spiritual fathers, not just to one or two, but that we should see people coming to Christ daily if we're doing what God calls us to be doing. I mean, there's no lack of need. Would you agree? Just walk out of these doors and go around the neighborhood. Most of the people are not saved the last time I checked. So there's a harvest that's just begging for Christians to give them the truth of the Word of God. Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you shared your faith? When's the last time you reached out to somebody who didn't know Christ? And you purposefully presented the gospel to them or shared your testimony? I pray that you would say, oh, I did that yesterday. I did that this morning. We run into people all the time at the grocery store, at the gas station. They don't know Christ. What stops us from saying, hey, you know what? I got this here. I want to share something with you. Our lobby is full of tracks. That's not a good thing, by the way. I would pray that I would walk out there and all those track racks would be empty. That's why they're there. They're free. Doesn't cost you a dime. We got to get the truth of the Word of God out to a lost and dying world. Now notice what he says here in verse 15. He says, though you have countless guides, ten thousands of thousands is really what it's saying. You can't even you have so many you can't even count. You have a lot of tutors, is the word, really, in your life, but you only have one father. You only have one spiritual father. That word tutor comes from two words. It means child and also a word that means leader. So it really means a leader of children, someone who's tutoring children, an instructor, you might say, of children. Usually that person was the slave in the household back in their, their day. In a wealthy household, that they would have 
slaves in their household, and one of the slaves would be in charge of, of one of the children. He would take them to school, he would teach them, do whatever he had, make sure the child was behaving properly. He was kind of like a guardian, you might say. Now, he's not putting those people down. He's not saying, oh, they're a dime a dozen. That's not his intention. He's saying, these are good things. You need those people. And you have a lot of them in your life. See, they will instruct you, and they will teach you, and we pray that they'll do a good job. But I'm coming to you not as just one of these myriads of teachers that you have. I'm coming to you as your spiritual father. He wants them to understand his heart. He's not just a simple guardian or somebody who's paid to watch over the children. It's kind of like taking a child to a daycare center or taking them to grandpa and grandma's. <laughs> the big difference. He felt as a father to his children. And notice he says, for in Christ Jesus I became your father. It wasn't his own doing. It was Christ working through him and through others that they came to Christ. So he wants them to understand that, you know what? First of all and foremost, he has a heartfelt concern for their spiritual walk. He also shares a compassion for them. He wants them to understand that. And he gave birth to them, really, all the way back in Acts. Came to Corinth, he stayed in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, he was a tent maker, and began to share the gospel. People began to come to Christ. And out of that came the church of Corinth. See, Christ wanted a church in that, that city, that wicked city. That city that was focused on philosophy of the world and the wisdom of the world and the riches of the world. God said, I'm going to plant a, a church right there, and I'm going to use Paul to do it. It was in Christ that the burden came to share the gospel. Understand, it wasn't Paul's burden it was God's burden through Paul. It was in Christ Jesus that the power, the anointing, all that came that drew the Corinthians to Christ and to the conviction and to the cross. So he's their spiritual father. And he wants them to understand that, you know what? For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights, Proverbs 3.12 says. So he's willing to say these hard things. Because he understands that they need to hear it. You know, sometimes after the service, on our way home or over lunch or whatever, we'll be talking and my wife uh, lovingly <laughs> say, you know, you said this in your message. What did you mean by that? And I can feel my defensive kick in. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? 
And then I got to remind myself, well, wait a minute, why is she saying this? She's picking on me? No, she's concerned. Maybe I misquoted something or whatever. She wants to bring it to my attention. Why? Because she loves me. She didn't care. She wouldn't say anything. And sometimes, you know, we have to remind ourselves that the criticism we hear from people comes from those that maybe we, that, that we love most and they love us the most. And so, chapter 5, he's laying down this foundation because in chapter 5, he starts to talk about sexual immorality in the church which is a very dicey subject, to say the least. And he's making sure that this Corinthian congregation understands his heart. That he's not just doing this just out of the hardness of his heart. He's doing it out of concern for them. He's giving them the word of truth. He's clarifying his love for them. And then he speaks of, third thing here, the counsel, his counsel. What's he going to say to him right now? Verse 16. It says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Whoa, wait a minute, Paul. What kind of statement is that? I urge you, I exhort, some translations say. Parakaleo, it means to call alongside of someone, to be- beseech them to do something, to entreat them to do something. It's, it's really a, a counseling word. That's what we're called to do as the body of Christ, by the way, to come alongside each other if we have issues. You come alongside each other. And so he says here, What's his counsel? Be imitators of me. That word imitator, in the original, we actually get the word mimic from it. You know, like a mime. I mean, how many words does a person say when they're doing a mime? None, right? They're they're acting it out. Their communication is nothing other than their actions. That's, that's really what he's doing. He's, he's saying, you know what? They communicate by their actions, and you're supposed to be able to discern what they're doing and how and who they are by what they're doing. It's kind of like charades, the game of charades. You probably played that. I hate that game. I just don't like it. I just, I'm not quick on my feet, so... But what, what, what's he saying? You know, I'm not concerned about your talk. I'm concerned about your walk. I'm concerned about what I'm seeing. I'm talking to you about what you say. Not about what you say, but about how you're living. That is what I'm dealing with here. And so he says, be imitators of me. Mimic me. Now, he's not putting himself on a pedestal, saying, oh, you know, I'm the best thing to the church since... Apple pie. He's not saying that. He's not saying I'm up here and you're down there. That's not the purpose. That's the problem, by the way, in many churches today. Spiritual leaders have that mentality. 
And that's just plain wrong. It's prideful. I often say the only difference between whoever's standing in this pulpit and those who are hearing him, the person teach from this pulpit, is the direction they're facing. That's it. That's the only difference. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners saved by God's grace. We're dependent on him each and every day. So what's he saying here? He's saying, do as I do. It's in the present tense. It's a lifestyle. Imitate me. Continue to imitate me. It means to do as somebody else does. And you see that throughout the New Testament. If you look over at chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me. As I, and he qualifies it, as I am of Christ. I mean, it sounds almost braggadocious to say something like that. Paul says, I am doing something that I have seen in Christ that he does. And I want you to do the same thing. In verse 31, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And then in verse, uh, he says, uh, Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, um, do for the glory of God in the other text. See, Paul is saying, I seek to do that for Christ. I want him to be seen in me more than anything else. Therefore, I want you to let him be seen in you. Do what I'm doing. Surrender, bow, trust, obey. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, do everything I do in my life completely. Ephesians chapter 5, verse verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus... Oops, and we're faithful. That's one one. Let's get to five one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So once again, He says, "Be imitators of God." Why? Because I'm, as much as I'm an imitator of God, then imitate me. That's what He's saying. Have you ever read the book by uh, Charles Sheldon called "In His Steps"? If you haven't read it, it's a great little. It's not a real big book. It's it's okay. It's called In His Steps. And uh, it talks about living your life with the mentality, I'm going to do everything that Christ would do in every situation all the time. It's just an amazing uh, book to read. And it helps us see how far we really come from that kind of mentality. Um, so he wants us to walk Back to 1 Corinthians, he wants us to walk as he is following Christ, to imitate him. I mean, you're going to imitate something, aren't you? Why not imitate something that's godly? Imitate Christ. Paul says of the Thessalonians, 
that you also become imitators of us and of the Lord. How? Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's 1.6 in 1 Thessalonians 2.14. He says, For you, brethren, become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How, you might say? For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as we did from the hands of the Jews. Or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You think of those two ingredients there. Patience meaning the ability to bear up under that Christ gives and then trusting him, bearing up under. See, these are things that God alone can empower you to do. And so what Paul was saying is, you know, it's, it's not follow lockstep in me. You know, I went to a church one time for a conference and all the, all the staff, all the pastoral staff, they talked like the pastor they look like the pastor. If they wore glasses, they wore the black, black glasses, just like the pastor had. They had the mannerisms of the pastor. It was kind of scary. It was really weird. And I thought, boy, this is odd. You know, that's not, not what Paul is saying. He's saying, follow me. Don't, don't be immature. Don't act like a baby. Attach yourself to Christ, because that's what I'm doing. That's what I've taught you to do. So Paul is bringing them to the teaching, bringing them to the walk, bringing them to the act of surrender, to the act of putting their faith in Christ. He also talks about the willingness to be a fool in the world's eyes. The willingness to walk humbly before God, no matter what the world thinks of you. I mean, if, if anybody dealt with that, it was the Apostle Paul. And the Corinthian church was more concerned with the world than they were with what God thought. Which is really unfortunate. Paul says, we're not that way. We're apostles. Do as we do. Humble yourself. Obey God. Let God be in you what he wants to be. Attach yourself to him. I guarantee you the world will look at you, and when they do, don't be worried about that. And then the last thing here, Paul's companion, he mentions verse 17. That is why I sent to you Timothy. That's his companion. Why did he send Timothy? Because Timothy was an ex- pretty much an exact representation of who Paul was. Why? Because he was Paul's disciple. Paul was pouring his life into Timothy. And so when it came down to where the rubber meets the road and Paul needed to go to Corinth and he couldn't go, what did he do? He said, you know what? Go, Timothy, because it's just like me going. You're you're a representation of me as I represent Christ. He says, my beloved son in the faith. And that ties this together. That is why I sent Timothy to you. Because he has the same heart that I have. I trust that you have somebody in your life that you're discipling. 
somebody that you're caring for spiritually, somebody that's taking on the same spiritual characteristics that you have. Maybe if you're a father or a mother, it's your children. But I pray that there's someone outside of your family that you're discipling. I mean, Paul just didn't want to send anybody to the Corinthians. He wanted to send somebody to them that was able to remind them of the ways in Christ. That's what he says. He even says it in Philippians chapter 3, to write the same things again to you is no trouble to me. I will reap your benefit. It will reap your benefit is what he says. In other words, he's not apologizing for reminding them over and over and over and over again of some very elementary things. Why is that? Because they weren't getting it. I forget who it was, but I read a a story of a a preacher who preached on the same text over and over and over and over, week after week after week after week. And someone asked him, why do you keep on preaching on the same text? He goes, I'm not seeing it lived out in your life. So I'm just going to keep on bringing it to you every week until it impacts you. That's the word here, remind. It means to put in the mind of someone over and over and over and over again. That's what we do with our children, do we not? I mean, when our children get up and they, they're able to walk or whatever, maybe we live in a neighborhood and we have a front yard and they're in the front yard and we say, no, don't go in the street. What do they do? They wander around the street. You got to discipline them. And it may take years before you finally realize, wow, you're looking out there and they're not in the street. They finally have it. They finally understand it. They're finally what? Trained. And that's what Paul is doing to them. When you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 that talks about the word of God. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's helpful for a couple things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And then it says what? And for training in righteousness. See, the problem with a lot of churches today is the word of God is taking a back seat. There's no teaching of the Word of God. So there's no profitability, you might say, of the ministry. Yeah, people walk away feeling fine about themselves. But are they being trained in righteousness? Teaching, reproof, correction, training. It means child training, that word. It starts with teaching. Finally, they get it. They're trained. Your children are doing what you have told them for years to do or not to do. And finally you go, wow, they got it. That's what Paul's heart is with the Corinthian church. He's willing to remind them over and over and over again and to address the hard issues. Why? Because he has a concern for them. He shares a compassion for them. He wants to give them counsel. And he even yields his companion, Timothy, to them. 
to push them, to prod them, to cause them to, to live in alignment to the truth of the Word of God. What's he saying? He's saying, have your senses trained up. Grow up. Get out of the nursery. Throw away the little pacifier and start walking the way you should walk as a believer. That's hard. That's tough. It's tough love from the hand of God through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. Just remember, every time you open up the Word of God, as hard as it is sometimes to read some of the passages that are there, because they're very convicting. Remember, this is God's love letter to you, and it's there for a purpose. It's there to call you into alignment to His truth. I'll ask you this morning, can you receive the hard things that the Word of God is willing to say to you as His children? Father, we thank You for Your Word Lord, we thank you for Paul's spiritual fatherhood to the Corinthian church, that he really deep down cared for these people. It wasn't just a thing he went through on autopilot, but he, his heart was truly concerned over what was going on in this church, and for good reason. He was the reason that it was a church. He was the one that brought the truth to them originally. So he has that intimate relationship spiritually, that connection to them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just remind us that we may not be the Apostle Paul, but we're called to action. We're called to take this precious word of God, the gospel, out to this lost and dying world that we live in here, even in the peninsula. We're less than 3% of the population go to any household of faith, anything. The fields are white. People need to hear your truth. I pray that we would be willing to take the truth of the word of God, even to take some tracts and to hand them out. Lord, give us that boldness that we need in our testimonies as we share the the truth of the word of God with those around us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that you would... Allow them to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me from my sin. There's no way that you can be free from the burden of sin, from the penalty of sin, outside of Christ. You need to come to Christ. You need to come to the Savior. He'll forgive you. He'll transform you. He'll make you a brand new person in Christ. I pray that that would be your desire this morning. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would bless our time of fellowship and and meal across the way after the service and just give us a good uh, remainder of our weekend and uh, just uh, bless us as we sing one last song together. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.